Hey, it's Destry. And Katie. And we're the Practical Idealists. And this is the beginning of one of our infamous two-parters. Today we're going to be talking specifically about Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island, but the overarching theme of these two episodes is the first four initial direct-to-video Scooby-Doo films. So that includes Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island, Scooby-Doo and the Witch's Ghost, Scooby-Doo and the Alien Invaders, and Scooby-Doo and the Cyber Chase. So Katie. Yes, Destry. Tell me about your personal history with the Doo. The do, Scooby, <laughs> as it were. Honestly, I don't have much of one. I mean, I never grew up with cable, so I didn't have access to Scooby-Doo in the same way that I think a lot of kids did. Of course, I was aware of it. It wasn't exactly something that you could get away from in the 90s, especially. And I remember other kids being really obsessed with it. And I never really liked scary things as a kid either. So there was really nothing about the property to make me be like, oh, that's something I want to watch. I remember the like the specials that they had around holidays that would come to like normal TV. And I remember all of the merchandise that was everywhere. But yeah, I mean, I never really watched it that much as a kid. It was just sometimes if I was over at my grandmother's house, and she would have Cartoon Network on or something, it would be on there. Well, and I remember when the movies came out, like the live action movies. Actually, I just now remember this. I remember seeing the first live action movie at a drive-in. I remember my mom wanting to see it. I don't know why exactly, but I remember seeing the first one at a drive-in and my mom thinking it was really funny. And I was like vaguely creeped out by it. Cause again, like I never liked scary things as a kid, but. I know that I must have seen both of them cause there was two in theaters, but I only specifically remember seeing the second one at like a dollar theater, like right before it went on to DVD. Nice. Or it could have already been on DVD. But things were a lot slower back then because once it finishes in the cinema now, it's usually like less than a month of a wait between that and the DVD. Mm-hmm. But remember back in like the late 90s, early 2000s, there was like six to eight month delay for whatever reason. I never fully understood that. I just remember that theater was completely devoid of people except for me <laughs> and my friend, I think. And I think even my friend got bored halfway through it and like went to the bathroom <clears throat> for like 40 minutes. So. <laughs> well, I remember Scooby-Doo being a big thing, like I said, like from a merchandising thing. I remember all the costumes and I remember at church fall costume parties that there was always like a ton of Scooby-Doo's. So looking back on it now, based on the information that you now possess, mostly because of me, do you feel any differently about it or do you still feel the same kind of disconnect? I don't think that I have the benefit of the the nostalgia that has me coming back and coming back and coming back to it like a lot of people do. Because it does seem like it's one of those things that as soon as someone says it, they're like, oh, that was my childhood, like with the whole Scooby Natural thing and Supernatural. Like when I saw that they were doing that, because I, I love Supernatural, I was like, oh, that's a really cute idea. And I'm glad, like they've talked about Scooby Doo in the past. So I'm glad that that was something that the show was able to do, but wasn't like, oh my gosh, this is the best idea ever. I can't believe that this is going to happen and they're going to get all of the voice people. And there's no emotional connection for me. I do really like the history of the show and I like seeing how the different voice artists have managed to try at least to keep the integrity of those characters and it feels like they've done a better job at keeping those voices similar than a lot of other properties. Well you also have to recognize the fact that 
for most of the initial voice cast, those were just exaggerations of their own natural voices. Yeah, so it felt so real because it kind of was real. So by carrying on the memory of the voice or the technique used to make the voice, you're also carrying on the memory of the person behind the voice. Which is awesome to think about. And that that's the thing that I really like about the show now, because I think that in addition to it being something that people can really lean on from a nostalgia perspective and like it still holds up for people who loved it before, it seems like. I think that it's awesome that it's something that other actors are like, yes, of course I want to record the Scooby-Doo theme song. Or yes, of course I want to come in and play a villain on Scooby-Doo. You know, it's, it's something that everyone wants to take part of. As far as whether or not I like it particularly. I don't dislike it. It's just not my thing. It really isn't my thing. But I do like the idea of it more than I like the show itself. It has like a really prolific legacy. It really does. And you know that I like people who like things. And this is one of those properties that make people really passionate. And I like it when people get passionate about something, even if I think that thing is kind of dumb. And one of the nicest things about it is because there are so many different iterations of it. There's no way, unless you're like very meticulous, that you've seen every single episode, every single iteration. So it's very easy to go back and kind of relive it from a nostalgic standpoint, but also it's very easy to find things that you know that you haven't seen before. Mm -hmm. It has such a long history to it because it's it spans 50 years Mm -hmm. this is the 50th anniversary so i think that it was something that introduced a lot of people to horror and it was like their gateway drug they got to have something that was a little bit scary without being scary and they got to learn that humans are the real monsters a very important lesson to learn in this day and age it really is though (laughs) so i have to admit that i'm one of those crazy weird people that just so happens to be a super fan. And like you were saying, it's pretty inescapable, especially since I did have cable growing up and Cartoon Network was one of the three mainstays of my childhood, which was Nickelodeon, Disney Channel, and Cartoon Network. So in the earlier days, because Cartoon Network took a little bit longer to jump on the original content bandwagon, But the entire purpose of the network initially was to showcase the Turner Broadcasting Group's like ridiculous amount of property holdings. Mm -hmm. So they had Looney Tunes, they had all of Hanna-Barbera, they had all of these very nostalgic properties that they wanted to give a spotlight to. But for me, it was a good gateway into more creepy, intense kind of programming, especially the initial like first two seasons Scooby-Doo Where Are You? It was enough to keep you coming back to it without feeling like you were being overwhelmed. So as a super fan I've tried to accrue as much knowledge as I possibly can because one of the things that interests me the most about these type of shows especially the ones that I feel connected to is I want to know and understand the creativity behind them and I think that it gives them more power because you understand what happened behind the scenes that created the overall tone and atmosphere. Like of- who who thought this up and thought, you know what would make a really great kids TV show? Let's tell a story about a stoner and his talking dog 
who also hangs out with this really preppy blonde dude, a slutty red-haired girl, and a really smart chick. For some reason, they decide to get in a van altogether entitled The Mystery Machine, so God knows what goes on in there. <laughs> and let's solve mysteries. This sounds like a great kids TV show, whatever. <laughs> How old were they supposed to be anyway? High school age. And yet they were all just like, oh, well, forget about school. We're going to smoke some stuff and hang out in a van and catch grown-ass men wearing masks. Actually, there is a non-confirmed, unofficial answer to that question. So this year, for the 50th anniversary, they decided to release two throwback Scooby-Doo films, one of which was The Curse of the 13th Ghost. It's kind of like a wrap-up for the 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo from the mid-80s with Vincent Price. And in the movie, they kind of indirectly say that the bulk of the mysteries tend to happen on their summer vacation. So they just have very, very long summer vacations. I mean, it's kind of confirmed that if it's anything but relatively summertime, that it's in and around Coolsville where they live. So they just have really, really cool parents who don't <laughs> care that a bunch of kids are hanging out together in a sex van. Well, I mean, considering in 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo, they have a private jet, so... Whatever that says for the franchise. So, I mean, I guess Daphne's the rich one. I was going to say who's the rich one, but it's pretty clear it's Daphne. So she just has a rich dad who's bankrolling this whole operation? I guess so. I mean, they never asked for payment for solving the mystery, so someone has to be... Unless it's under the table. But... <laughs> and then the other thing that they released this year was actually a sequel to Zombie Island. I haven't seen it yet, mainly just because it seems like they're really trying to retcon the monsters are real thing which was the entire conceit of these first four movies. They actually just defer what happened in the original and they make it seem like it's an unsolved mystery because it was too supernatural. Right. <laughs> so now they're going back to resolve the already solved mystery because what we saw wasn't the real mystery. But I really do think it's cool that they brought back the 13 ghosts, especially since in the original series, there's 13 episodes, but the first episode is the setup, so they only get to capture 12 of the 13 ghosts, which is why... It actually needed a tag at the end to capture the final ghost, as opposed to a retread of the zombie island thing. Which again, though, if a animated TV show can get Vincent Price... <laughs> well, that says something, though, that it was prolific enough and that the creators were good enough and that the team was good enough that Vincent Price was like, you know what? I'm going to do a kid's show. Mm -hmm. Like, that can't just have been an easy thing for them to be like, excuse me, Mr. Price, god of horror, will you please come and do voices for a kid's show? He didn't need to do that. He has enough money. So I think that says a lot about a show that they would be able to get people like that to come on. I didn't even know initially that this year was the 50th until it was brought to my attention by uh, two YouTubers that kind of gave me the inspiration to make this our Halloween podcast. And uh, their names are uh, Dr. Wolfula <laughs> and uh, Ryan Hollinger. And most of the research that I will be speaking about here shortly mainly came from Wikipedia and Scoobypedia. Well, where else would it come from? <laughs> Mainly, I was interested in the connectivity between the creative decisions that were made and the final product. So a lot of what I have here as far as trivia is to that effect. 
So I think that we should go ahead and jump into talking about Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island, which came out in 1998. This was the first substantial Scooby-Doo property since a pup named Scooby-Doo ended <laughs> in 1991. And um, they had a couple of key players, which I'm going to kind of go through here because they're going to reappear as we continue to talk about these. So the screenwriter, his name is Glenn Leopold, had been with the franchise since 1979. Off and on, he worked in-house at Hanna-Barbera. The director, which is Jim Stenstrom, was with the franchise since 1983, but he also remains involved in the franchise as a character designer. And he's one of the only ones, actually, that is still relatively involved with the franchise. Then you have Davis Doy, which that must have been an interesting name around the office. And I found some conflicting information about him because I couldn't find anything to substantiate this, but this is what Wikipedia listed it. Like his role is that he was the head of Hanna-Barbera, which I think that there was more involved. I think that in this movie, he's actually referred to as the supervising producer. So essentially, I think what that is trying to say is that he was involved in spearheading the major property. And then we have Lance Falk, who was a character designer, and he contributed story elements for all four of the films. And as far as Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island is concerned, it was an in-house production because at this time, Hanna-Barbera had been kind of taken under the wing of the overarching Warner Brothers animation studio, but it was still its own separate entity. So they had their own team, they had their own animators. It was a very tight-knit community. And they had literally no studio interference whatsoever. Like, literally the head of Warner Brothers was like, we have all these properties now because we've merged. We want you to come up with a way to revitalize these properties. So just let us know what you're doing. Lock all the creators in a room. Yeah. <laughs> no food or water until you come out with something new. But the nice thing is that they didn't have any time constraint. It was literally just write it, storyboard it, animate it, and whenever it's finished, just hand it in. So they got to really sit down and make something that they were proud of. And in my opinion, that's when people make either the biggest mistakes of their career or they actually do something prolific and I do think that this first movie is rather prolific in the fact that it really capitalized on the nostalgia that we've been talking about mm -hmm. but it also turned that on its head and went in a new <clears throat> more interesting direction that never seemed to be reutilized after this initial outing. So that's essentially the <clears throat> creative team behind this movie especially and the next three after this. So on to the voice actors. And this was definitely one of the first times that a lot of major players were missing. So first and foremost, Casey Kasem actually declined to appear as Shaggy in the movie because he objected to the fact that Shaggy was not vegan. I'm sorry, what? But he's a stoner, stoners can't be vegan. Which is what the studio told him. <laughs> Apparently they forced his hand into voicing the character in a Burger King commercial. Oh shit. 
And after that, he pretty much made it a stipulation of his contract that unless Shaggy was at the very least vegetarian, that he would not voice the character any longer. And he might have had a point, honestly, because Don Messick, who is the original and pretty much definitive Scooby-Doo, did pass away in 1997. So I think that he may have felt that if I'm not involved, that the property will just die with us. I can respect wanting to make a statement with your career, but that's dumb. (laughs) With all due respect to the vegans and vegetarians out there, your character that you voice in an animated kids show not being vegan is a very stupid reason (laughs) not to get a paycheck. So this so happened to be the first iteration without both him and Don Messick. They decided to replace Kasem with Billy West. Which, to be fair, you can tell that he is not the normal person doing his voice. I mean, he didn't do a bad job, but that was one of the first things I said when we were watching. I'm like, that's not a normal person doing his voice, is it? And I didn't even recognize it was Billy at first. And usually I'm pretty good at pulling his voice out. So for those who are unacquainted, he is... Futurama. Yeah. yeah, He is Futurama. That's pretty much all you have to say at this point. And this was his one and only time voicing the character, which also kind of mirrored the fact that he also only ever voiced Bugs Bunny once in Space Jam two years prior. I just thought it was funny that this was the time in his career where he was brought in and then, okay, you can go. (laughs) He was the fillers. So to replace Don Messick, we have Scott Innes. And I could not find much information about his his rise to prominence. It seems that this was the thing that kind of put him on the map. So there's not a lot of information about what he did prior to this. So he must have auditioned really good. And I mean, besides the fact that the voice was less gravelly than usual, I really couldn't tell that there was much of a difference. But then again, Scooby-Doo is such a character voice that it's a little bit easier to replicate than somebody's elevated speaking voice. Yeah, and Scooby-Doo is something that like everyone does now too. He was replaced by Frank Welker for pretty much every other iteration of the show, but he did and still continues to do a lot of merchandising. He does the voice for theme parks, so he's still involved. He's the one you always see go to like Comic-Con for Scooby-Doo. Then as Daphne, we have Mary Kay Bergman, and she voiced the character in three out of the four, and we will touch more on that when we talk about Alien Invaders. Then we have BJ Ward, who voices Velma, and she voices her in all four. And then, as I said, Frank Welker returned as Fred, and a funny little anecdote that I saw was that the studio was considering not rehiring him for the voice. Because they were convinced that his voice had dropped an octave (laughs) and he no longer sounded like the character. Okay. But it came to the studio's attention that because in reruns the show had been sped up to allow for extra commercials, his voice was pitch shifted. So when he did his re-audition, they decided that it was close enough. Oh my god. (laughs) So other notable voice actors in this film are Mark Hamill, Jim Cummings, and Tara Strong. (laughs) Who was not Tara Strong at the time of the movie. Her name was Tara Cherendoff. You know. And 
you had some strong opinions of oh. Miss Tara Strong's oh. uh, voice in this. Well, I mean, first of all, as soon as she opened her mouth, I was like, oh, hey, it's Tara Strong, and you just laughed at me. I, um, from the very beginning of her character entrance, felt very strongly that this was not a voice that was suitable for a children's program. It sounded like a like a phone, a cam girl or something. Like we we had some uh, some good old times coming up with some of the things that she was actually saying to Fred off on camera the side, on, yeah. on the side there because um, <laughs> that voice was not suitable for children. And it just got worse. I yeah. feel like it, it really got worse. The more southern she got, the more the more sexual it became. <laughs> the other notable actress in the film was Adrienne Barbeau, which was Miss Lenoir. The funny anecdote I have about her is that she was in John Carpenter's The Fog about demon ghost zombie pirates. Gee, that sounds familiar. Right. <laughs> so this is the second movie where she's involved with ghost zombie pirates. <laughs> you know, zombie pirates, it's a thing. <laughs> And who was she married to? Was it John Carpenter? Oh, yeah, she was married to John she Carpenter. She was married to John Carpenter? Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> He must have really liked her performance. <laughs> sure, that's how she got the job. Yeah. So the animation was outsourced to a Japanese studio called Mook Animation. And they did these first initial four films and never again. So I don't know if they just enjoyed working with the initial creative team and once they left the property they just weren't interested or if warner brothers just didn't want to pay them to continue working on the series but yeah so these are all animated by them and mook animation has a lot of relatively prolific anime under their belt it seems like they were really attached to all the backgrounds yes i don't know if I was being crazy, but it seemed like everything was like, and look at more backgrounds. Have you noticed all of our background animations here? The backgrounds are very reminiscent of especially Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Where they feel painted. I felt like the light was super anchored in yes. a lot of those background images, which is something that I think that you see in a lot of Scooby-Doo. Like they're very conscious of where the light is coming from. Mm -hmm. But I really noticed it in this movie, especially with all the fire and the candle that they had, the light placement was super important in this movie. And there's a very distinct definition between the backgrounds and the characters. Oh yeah. Especially like in the original series where the animation was limited, so it made it look a certain way. Mm -hmm. And I feel like they spent a lot of time recreating that with this film yeah they tried to make it have the same look as the show and i think a lot of that came from the fact that the original character designer that came up with the gang iwao takamoto actually returned to offer input and cool. storyboard i liked the updated well the slightly updated character models i liked the faces a lot better in this one and i think that a lot of the distinction comes from the fact that they're supposed to be like actual adults in this one. Right. Like it's pretty much a given that time has passed between their earlier exploits. Well, they and have this real one. grown up jobs now. So right. Daphne stood out to me. Like her face stood out to me a lot of times. Mm -hmm. It seemed like she had a lot more expression than I ever noticed in the TV show. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that a anime studio was doing all of the animation. So that kind of lends itself to a certain aesthetic and a certain look and that you're not going to get with 
just normal American animation. So a couple other tidbits of trivia. Glenn Leopold, which was the screenwriter, actually wrote the lyrics of the pop songs featured in the film. And there were a lot of them. And the rock band Third Eye Blind performed the theme song. And I thought this was just weird. The film debuted on Cartoon Network almost directly after its release on home video. That is kind of weird. And so this began a tradition of them releasing one film during the Halloween season between 1998 and 2001. Which is a great idea. That's where it belongs. Right. I liked the story structure of this movie more than I thought I would. I definitely agree because I was thinking about that because... This is a very non-traditional, non-linear... It really is. Scooby-Doo property. I've never seen this movie before. Right. There were a lot of darker parts to it that I wasn't anticipating. Mm -hmm. And I liked that they gave all of the characters a chance to be grown-ups. I liked seeing, like, this is where we imagine them being as adults. And I like that they were all kind of doing their own thing, but still happy to be together again. I like that Daphne was finally, like doing something for once. Because <laughs> with this story structure, I felt that it lends itself to be rewatched more than the typical, we're going to solve a mystery gang that the show usually employs. I feel like they took their typical story structure and they said, all right, you want a Scooby-Doo story? Here's a Scooby-Doo story, but wait. <laughs> like, I love the idea that they were like, all right, well, obviously the villains in this are the zombies. So we have to tackle the zombies. And they're, they're like, no, 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 wait. The zombies are the good guys. Mm -hmm. So I like the idea that, number one, that they had to check themselves and be like, okay, who's actually the villain here? So there was a moment there where they all kind of had to be like, wait a second. These aren't just freaky things. These are things to be pitied. These are things that had something done to them. So there was all of these like preconceived notions that they're like, we've been doing this forever. We know who the villains are. And it made them take a step back and go, wait a second. And I like the idea that they weren't necessarily going out to look for clues. Like the entire point of the movie was that they're tired of unmasking fakes and phonies. So we're going to go on a cross-country trip to find if there really is supernatural beings or if we're basically just doomed to repeat this cycle over and over again with all of these nefarious people. And the fact that they weren't attempting to solve a mystery, they were kind of... Looking for a reason. And they were involving themselves in the story more. And I think yeah. that, that is what kept it interesting and what continues to keep it interesting because I have a lot of nostalgia for this movie particularly because this is the only one that I ever owned <clears throat> on VHS. And I've seen it more times than I can imagine. But I was never bored during this one at all. And I think that a lot of that had to do with the fact that they were just experiencing the haunting and experiencing the evil without being like, okay, let's remove ourselves and be the analytical ones so that we can solve this problem. Well, and it's funny to me too, because one of the big themes in life right now for me and for you too, I think, is the idea of burnout. Mm -hmm. And I love the idea that, like, Daphne is sitting there and she's like, I'm burnt out by the fact that all of this is garbage. Like, we know it's going to be the banker who got thwarted by whoever. <laughs> we we know it's going to be the flight attendant who's angry at the pilot. Like, we know people are garbage. What I want is something interesting. Mm -hmm. So I love the idea she's just, like, embittered by the fact that she's been catching all of these stupid grown-ass men being idiots. And yeah. she's like, can I... 
I just have a goddamn ghost for once? That's all I want. I just want a ghost. That's it. But that's what I liked about this particular movie is that you get to kind of see what happens once the last mystery has been solved. We can't tell you any more times that it's always a guy wearing a mask. So just a lot of interesting ideas and a lot of adult themes. And overall, I do believe that it does hold up. Like it definitely held my attention the entire time. And it didn't feel like the typical Scooby-Doo mystery. I think that they did enough different and enough the same to make sure that you weren't put off by it, but at the same time, you were able to re-engage with the characters and re-engage with the franchise because they were doing something relatively different. And isn't that what we always say, is that if you're going to reboot, remake, rehash something, that you have to add something. Yeah, if you're going to do it, then you better make it worth everybody's while. And I think the fact that they had so much time and actual control over the product made it that much easier for them to achieve what they wanted to achieve. And it didn't get convoluted by all these outside influences. Like it was a tried and true Hanna-Barbera production. Well, I think that for someone who isn't super familiar with the franchise beyond Scooby Natural and, you know, the normal amount of Scooby-Doo exposure that you kind of have to have in this world. I enjoyed it. I thought it was a fun time. I enjoyed sitting in our our dark living room with Mm. our our scary Halloween candle going, and it was fun. It was a fun watch. I was actually really surprised by how much I still really liked it. I definitely felt the same way about it that I have always felt. And it's definitely one of those movies where, you know, you put it on right as the sun is setting, so the darker that the movie gets the darker it is outside. I mean, that's how we watched it. It's just, it's one of those movies. I mean, that's how I always used to watch it, was I'd always come home from school and do my homework really quick. And then right around six, seven o'clock, I'd put it on. And by the time it was over, it would be dark. So it was very nostalgic in that way for me. So I feel as though we have come to the end of our discussion about Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. And coming up next month, we have the remaining three films. So... Happy Halloween. Happy spoopy time. And we hope you enjoyed listening. We have a Twitter at idealist underscore the. We will see you in the next one. Bye.